Greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. We are again in Genesis, now in chapter 8 and verse 1. Last time we were reading uh, Genesis chapter 7, the last sentence, or the last verse, was verse 24, where we read, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, in other words, in other words five months. That was the period of the, of the flood, in the sense that uh, until that point, there was still plenty of water on the, on the face of the earth, and only after that there was a change where there was a receding of the water. And so in verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Then Elohim, that is God, remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. It's a very interesting uh, way of putting it. Then God remembered Noah. It's not that he forgot. It's just that God had a timetable, and when the time came, then basically you see this statement being mentioned, and God remembered. And let's go to, uh, to Exodus, and in Exodus, which is something very similar to that, in Exodus 14, where you remember uh, in the days of Abraham, God basically told him that his descendants shall be sojourners and strangers and shall be afflicted by their enemies, uh, both in the land of Canaan, which is a part of Egypt, and uh, in many other places you read about uh, many, many other stories that you don't see when you read the account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But actually they had a lot of, uh, well, at least a few wars and many adversaries. Uh, Abraham didn't have as much with the Philistines. It was basically at peace, except the time when he had to fight uh, those who came to fight against uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and then uh, after that, in the days of Isaac, he always had problems with the Philistines. It was sort of... Uh, uh, like the present-day Palestinian uh, Jew, you know, war over the land, over the water, over this, over that. That was going on in his days, in the days of Jacob. Also, uh, we, we think that he just lived a peaceful life. And yet later on, uh, when he spoke to Joseph at the end of his life, he's actually mentioning to him something very interesting. He said that, I will give you to Joseph. Uh, you can read it in the last chapter of, uh, I, I believe in uh, chapter... 48 of Genesis, where he told him that he's giving him uh, the parcel of the land of, uh, of uh, Shechem, in Hebrew Shechem, today it's an Arab town called Nablus, but he said he was giving it to Joseph, that's the part where he buried uh, his mother, Rachel, and he said, I will give you that piece of land which I have taken by my sword. In other words, even Jacob had to go to war, and if you remember even his own sons, uh, at one point, they had to go and destroy all the inhabitants of the city of Shechem, or Shechem. Uh, Shechem or Shechem uh, comes from the word shoulder. I guess it was on the shoulder of a hill. And so they called it shoulder, or Shechem. And they had to go and, to destroy, and destroy everybody in that city. Of course, they did it in a, in a deceitful manner, where they asked everybody to circumcise. And when they were in great pain, after three days, they went and destroyed everyone. But it was because they provoked... Uh, now, the family of Jacob, uh, they dishonored their, their sister and the daughter of Jacob, and they said uh, such folly or such an abomination, whatever it is, you know, cannot be uh, looked over when it is done in Israel, that is, in the family of Israel. And so, uh, it wasn't a time of peace constantly for them, and many stories are uh, recorded in history. Josephus tells us about a lot of those things. And... So, when the children of Israel were to sojourn in the land of Canaan and the land of Egypt, they were going to be persecuted here and there at different times, and mainly 
Now, the greatest uh, part came in Egypt in the slavery. And yet, when God told Abraham in 400 years, roughly it was 430, when he's going to deliver Israel, and then when we come to that point, this is what we basically read, when God now appears to Abraham, and uh, then we, uh, we read in, in Exodus 14, no, that's not Exodus 14, but it's in Exodus 2.24, Exodus 14, that's another thing we'll come to, but in Exodus 2.24, when God appears to Moses after Israel begins to mourn and cry and, and, uh, and ask God for help, as we read in chapter uh, 2 and verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And uh, in verse 24, so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. It's not that he totally forgot all about them. All he's saying here that God has a timetable, and when the time comes, that's exactly when God intervenes. And oftentimes people want to do uh, things their own way and want to jump the gun and uh, ask God, well, how long? Why didn't you do it now? And they don't realize that God knows every detail and is in charge of history and is in charge of every detail in our life. And only, only when the time is ripe, just like when the fruit is ripe. You don't go and eat a fruit when it's still green and doesn't taste good. A farmer learns that uh, very quickly. You have to wait until it is ripe. That's when you go and pick it up. But nowadays, because of greed on the part of the farming industry and other reasons also, for sake of convenience, the, the pluck and awful lot of the fruits and uh, sometimes vegetables, but mostly fruits, uh, out of due season, in other words, when they're still green, they're not really ripe, and so they're not really ripened, and they're transported over a long distance, and by the time it comes to you, and you eat it, oftentimes it's rotten inside, it doesn't taste good, doesn't have smell, because it didn't have the time, naturally it's God created it for it to be ripened, and God does always things on time, so when you come across this statement oftentimes when God remembered uh, whatever, in this case Noah, or the children of Israel, or somebody, something else, it is because God had appointed exact time on which he's going to intervene and not one minute earlier. And for that matter, not one minute, la one, one minute later. So we learn from that to have a, an awesome and tremendous faith in God. If we read these things and we allow them to, to deliver a message, and we have an ear to hear, uh, we will begin to develop uh, faith with God, and that's how we walk with God, as we study His mind and His nature and His character, as we study the way He does things, as we see all these examples which are written for our examples, as Paul would say later on, we develop a tremendous faith in God, and knowing that even when things seem to be wrong, and we think, well, if it doesn't happen now, I'm going to die, we should always remember and ascend above the flesh and above the mere sight of the eyes and by faith realize, no, God will do it and when he does it, that's the right time. It wasn't too late or it wasn't uh, the wrong time. And that's what we read here. So then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. In other words, God constantly cared about all these things. You see, everything is, is uh, written before him in details. And in due time, he will do everything. And that goes for our own trials and afflictions, whatever they may be. Uh, sometimes you know, they may be very severe, 
And we may think, well, I can't take it any longer. But God knows how long we can take it. God knows the exact time. God knows what he's looking for. God knows when is the trial causing us to be really ripened. And then he plucks us out of the mire, out of the trial, out of the fiery furnace. Not before that. So I have to take all those things into account. And uh, in faith live. And by faith live. As it says, the just, the just, the person who is just shall live by faith. Not give up and die. You see? Because he had no faith. That's why Christ said, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith? And today, how can he have faith? Uh, you, you push a button, something happens with a computer, uh, you have no faith anymore. And after that, even that is too slow for you. And every two, three years, we have to come up with a new computer that is even faster. That destroys faith. And we cannot live life like that. It's not a push-button society with God. When the fruit is ripe, this is exactly when God intervenes. So like King David, you know, we can cry to God uh, with all of our being and heart, but always remember, it's thy will be done, not my will. Because you know the exact time when things are right. And so that's exactly what is happening here. And so when the time was right, and God was constantly watching over them anyway, he knew exactly in what condition they were, how restless they were. After all, they had never lived that kind of life, being cooped up in a, in a, in a boat, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, the Queen Elizabeth uh, uh, ship at the time. And so obviously, the life was not that uh, that happy there. They didn't have any movies, no entertainment, nothing. Uh, except, you know, singing and uh, dancing, whatever they could do uh, on their own. But in either case, uh, God was totally, fully aware of the fact that both men and animals, so he mentions all of them, that when he remembers, he remembered all of them, not just men. He remembered men and every living thing. He knew what every one of them is going through and how much he really wanted to get out of that place. Yet, uh, we have to wait on God, and so they did, and that's what happens here. And so we read, and God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. So he didn't say, I just, just remembered Noah, but he remembered even all the living things. Shows you, tells you about the mind of God. You see, that's how you study the law of God. The teachings of God, the mind of God, the nature of God, the character of God. You go very deeply into every word that he gives you, and you find out more and more and more, instead of just reading the surface and then start yawning, you know, and getting bored with it and going somewhere else. And uh, that's the kind of people that God wants, and that's the only kind of people God is going to talk to. Those who hunger and thirst for his righteousness, not the casual, uh, you know, uh, tourist, so to speak. And so, uh, it's very, uh, very, very uh, important to understand and study the Word of God from that point of view. And in verse 2 we read, The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. So it was 150 days before God says, Okay, no more. And the rain from heaven was restrained. And verse 3, And the waters receded. In verse 3, this is what we read here. And... Uh, uh, okay, in, in verse, actually we passed uh, what's one uh, statement here that we should, uh, let's go back and uh, cover that part because I have some uh, comments about it. Uh, in verse 1 again, uh, then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth. I skipped that one. Uh, you should never skip anything in the Bible because everything has something in it. Otherwise God wouldn't record it. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. And so God now is using the wind 
and uh, remember wind in Hebrew is spirit, uh, ruach, and also the spirit that is in man, the spirit of God is also called ruach, both of them, only one is power, uh, nature, uh, which to begin with you can't touch, and you can't uh, hold in your hand, but you know you can see the impact of faith and so it is of the Holy Spirit, and Christ himself later on used that as an analogy to explain to, uh, to Nicodemus, how a man, when he becomes spirit, he becomes like the wind. Uh, you can see the impact, he can pass by, and he can feel somebody passes by, but uh, you can't see him and you can't touch him. And so God used the wind again, which he uses to create, which he uses to give wisdom and knowledge and understanding, because when it comes from him, that's, that's a different thing. That's no longer just power, that's his very, his very essence, because he is spirit, and we are not. It's a little bit difficult to understand when you're not a spirit being. And uh, we see an example of that, and maybe you should go to that, uh, the way God does things. Because remember, when the time was right, uh, God does uh, what he wants, and what he wants is always right, and what he wants becomes deliverance for us. And so in this case, when the time was right, God begins to send the wind to begin to dry the earth. And uh, by that time, you have an awful lot of water all the way up uh, to the top of the mountain. So it's an awful lot of work for the wind, so to speak to produce uh, the end results. And then we read also in another uh, occasion where God did the same thing. When the children of Israel reached a point where they thought, now that's the end. Pharaoh is going to come after us and destroy us because they fled from Pharaoh, but now they saw him and his chariots chasing after them. And they thought, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when you look at reality from the point of view of man, you know, whose thoughts are not the thoughts of God, nor his ways are the ways of God, they began to complain, and they began to even think that God was not that intelligent after all. Because he brings them to a point where the water is right in front of them, and there is no way for them to cross, and on the other side, the Egyptian army is. And they began to say, what kind of a God is that? You know, doesn't even know, know you know, what kind of a general he is. Uh, and so they complained against him directly and against Moses. And God told him, you know, don't worry about it. I'm totally in charge. I remember all things I know. I haven't forgotten, forgotten any detail. Uh, everything is under control. So he told him just to go through the Red Sea. And Israel thought, well, you must be crazy. Now, how can you do that? And yet God knows how to do things. And so in verse 21, uh, he told uh, Moses, uh, to uh, just lift up the rod and uh, stretch it over the water and the, and the water will uh, be divided in two. Well, uh, the children of Israel saw an awful lot of miracles, but this one they've never seen, so until they see it, they don't believe it because they had no faith. In other words, that will be done never meant anything to them, unfortunately. And so they all died. Uh, they are used as an example for us. We cannot live this kind of life. Uh, even animals are finally uh, taught to be trained and uh, they don't live by faith, but at least, you know, they know. When the master says, uh, go, then you go. If he says, don't go, you don't go. And that settles the matter for them. But animals are even, uh, that is, human beings sometimes are even worse than animals, as God said to Isaiah. The donkey knows where to go and eat. He knows his master, but my people don't know me. They are even worse than donkeys. That's what God is basically saying about his own people and everybody else who is that way. And so he tells him in verse 21 uh, in, to Moses, Then, Mo well, this is what Moses does, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused a sea, the sea to go back by a strong wind, uh, that is, east wind, all that night. 
and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And again, you see, just like the example here in the, in the days of Noah, when the time was ripe, deliverance was coming, and God is sending his, his, uh, his wind to, uh, to begin the process, just like he began the story in Genesis 1 and uh, then uh, verse 2. And the Spirit of God, that is the wind of God, and speaking about uh, God himself, in that instance, was hovering about the waters. It's not just just the physical wind itself only, but God himself was, uh, was in absolute uh, charge of the whole uh, creation. He knew what was happening. He knew what happened before. And later on you find out more details as you read in Isaiah and Ezekiel that there was actually a beautiful earth before that. As you read in Job that when God created the, the, the earth, the stars of God, speaking about the angels, rejoiced because it was in a perfect condition. And after that came destruction. And this is where Genesis 1 and then Genesis 1.1 and 1.2 come into play. After the destruction, well, then the land became chaos and confusion. It's not that God created it that way, but those who do not study the whole uh, word of God, uh, they get confused. They don't understand that. And even many of the wise and the mighty uh, don't understand that and don't comprehend that. That God didn't create and doesn't ever create, as he said later on in Isaiah. He doesn't create anything in vain or in confusion. He created perfectly. And so that's, that's what uh, we see there. Anyway, we're get, getting back to, to the wind here. Uh, where God sent the east wind uh, in the case of Moses. And here, uh, obviously, he's doing the same only now. I don't know, he doesn't say the east wind. In the case of Moses, he used that because the east wind comes from the east. In other words, from the land, from the desert. So it's a heat wind. It's a heat, uh, that is, it's, it's a, a hot wind, and therefore it dries the water and dries the ground. And the, the west wind comes generally from, from the ocean and from the sea. Uh, in Israel, it comes from the, the Mediterranean Sea, and that brings moisture. So just an opposite. One brings moisture, the other one brings dryness with it. And that's what God did uh, here probably also. Uh, only in this case, everything was ocean, so it's a different story. But in either case, the wind was pretty hot. Otherwise, we would not be able to do that. Now, today we have duplicated that, and we have uh, blow dryers, and we dry our hair with that. And that, that's our east wind. And so, this is what he did here. And then, uh, let's skip forward to uh, verse 3. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the, uh, of the 150 days, the waters decreased. So it's only at the end of 150 days, that means five months. And five months since it began on the seventh month, which is uh, Nisan, so now you have five months later, almost the end of the year, almost you're getting closer again to, uh, to uh, the first month, which is Tishrei, the month of creation. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, and in the seventh month will be Nisan, that's the Passover month, the 17th day of the month, and it's very interesting because Nisan is always the beginning of the year, that's springtime, and that's what it happened, and uh, only it happened here on the 17th day, which is about basically three days after the, or two days after uh, the Passover, but anyway, springtime, so start to renew things, and uh, verse uh, 4, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat, and that's in Turkey, on the border of Russia, and uh, some say, and I've seen pictures of that, 
that uh, that ark is still there. It's in a frozen state. It's a huge structure. There is no other reason for anything to be up there. And so it could be, be very well true. And verse 5, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it still takes a while uh, for the dryness. The wind is working overtime uh, to dry the whole area. And verse 6, So it came to pass, uh, at the end of 40 days, and again, 40 days after the, you can see the top of the mountains, uh, why exactly 40 days, very interesting, but again, a uh, matter of patience and trial and whatever it may be, and whatever other constants are in it, uh, I think, I don't think it's a coincidence uh, saying 40 days, it has a meaning there, and got to dig deeper, and you find other analogies to it. And the window of the ark, uh, in other words, so it came to pass, verse 6, uh, at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made so after seeing the top of the mountain and of course he's not able to see it uh, but this is what God is recording uh, after that Noah is opening the ark and for the first time he's looking around and verse 7 then he sent out a raven in Hebrew Oreb and that's a very interesting concept here uh, it's not just a word but it's a concept a concept that, interestingly enough, has to do also with the Passover of all things. Uh, the time of the Passover, the keeping of the Passover and understanding of it. I don't think it's related, uh, so I'm not necessarily going to talk too much about it. Maybe I'll ma mention something in the process. But, uh, Oreb, remember when uh, God told uh, Adam, Okay, Adam, I'm going to give you a job now because you're a part of the creation and, uh, you know, as a father, he's very very proud of his son, uh, he wants to see and uh, uh, what his son does about this and about that, you know, he's sharing his creation with him, and so that's what God is doing with, with his son Adam, and he says, okay, you, you come over here, uh, I'm going to bring all the animals before you, and you remember that, you can read it in uh, Genesis in chapter uh, 2, and verse uh, 19, uh, first in verse 18 we read, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. You see, comparable to him, not somebody else. A man is not comparable to a man. You see, a woman is. And that's what he's saying here. A helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. So in essence, he's telling Adam, you know, I'm, I'm going to let you be a part of the creation uh, since you're going to rule and have dominion over the earth, uh, I'll let you give the names for it. And uh, you can see the relationship there between uh, the father and son. And that is very, very instructive for us to see how God wants to share with us uh, his creation and uh, his nature and his character and his treasures. It is his pleasure to give us the kingdom, as it is said later on. And so... He gave it to Adam to see what he would call them, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam decided what is the name. And it's interesting to, to ask at this point, uh, what language did Adam use? You see? And uh, because after all, now we have so many languages, and from the days of Babel we had many languages, and after that many other languages came. English never existed in the days of Babel, and neither French or Russian or, or all those languages that developed later on. But whatever languages were at the time, uh, still the question is, what, what language did Adam speak? 
And obviously, uh, there was only one language that he spoke in all those until uh, the days of uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel, for a period of uh, about 1,600, 1,700 years. And so Adam, in verse 22, Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so he looked at birds and animals and all that, and uh, there was nobody that uh, could really uh, be helped for him. And uh, obviously, it wasn't, he wasn't looking for another man or another uh, whatever. He was looking for somebody that would uh, uh, continue this process of after his kind and the reproduction of that in future generations. And so he called uh, every bird a name. He called every animal a name. So what did he call what we call in English today, a language that came much later on, or a raven? In Hebrew, he called it orev. Oreb, that's with an ayn, you know, it's a letter, gadol letter that you don't have in other languages, but you have it in Semitic languages. Oreb. Uh, what does Oreb mean? Uh, you know, is it just a name? Did he give them just a name, or did he look at them and he began to think, and he began to think about the creation, about the things that he experienced, and then he came up with a name. You see, there has to be some kind of intelligence and uh, creativity there and putting things together. Now, this is where the name a raven, or raven Hebrew, becomes very interesting. And how Adam, uh, you know, gave him his name. And then a clue also about the language that he spoke and the language that will be spoken in the future. And so, Orev comes from the word uh, Erev. God says, and there was day and there was night. The word for night is Erev. You see? Erev, night. Now, how do things look at night? They look dark. You see? Erev. And... Erev comes uh, at a time where you just don't see anything. All light is gone. And so everything looks dark. So he looks at that bird, and he thinks about night, Erev, and, he call, and because the bird is dark, black, so to speak, that's what he calls him. He calls it Erev. You see, from the word Erev, night, dark. Uh, that, that's what he, what he gave him. And uh, then uh, you have the concept that developed as time went by, that when the sun goes down, you see, when the sun goes down, it goes toward the, the, the area where it becomes dark. So the word for dark became also ma'arav, which means west. Since the sun rises from the east and goes toward the west, so the west became, uh, in the Semitic languages, ma'arav. In Hebrew, ma'arav. And other languages uh, spoken at the time was also very similar. Ma'arab. Ma'arab, why? Because the sun goes toward uh, an area where everything is dark. You see? So you see the link there between dark and evening and west. And so, uh, this is what I wanted to, uh, to bring here. Uh, uh, from that comes also the, the name uh, Arab, you know, Aravi, Aravim, Arabs. Arabs doesn't mean anything but in Hebrew, Aravim. Uh, or Aravi for a singular, Aravim, and Aravim comes again from night, because, uh, why? Only because they were dark? No, but because, you see, all those, all those that went over the river, that is, uh, the Mesopotamian river of uh, the Hidekel and uh, the Euphrates, all those who went away from it, crossed over, they went toward the west. And the West was called Ma'arab, which means Arab, which means dark, you see. And so all the people that went over the river, which was in the east, Babylon is called the land of the east. 
So all those who went west were called Aravim, you see, because of the evening uh, concept that uh, developed there into also the west concept, you know, Ma'arav. So all these things are linked. And now later on when God tells Israel uh, to sacrifice the Passover, he tells them at the going down of the sun. And the sun goes toward the, the, the that is uh, uh, the west, you see. And so it says, Ben Ha'arbaim. The word Ben Ha'arbaim, that means Arbaim uh, is a terminology that is used only when you have two. Like Yad, hand, two is Yadaim. You see? The plural generally is Im in Hebrew. El, one God, Elohim, uh, two gods. But uh, that is plural, you know, for it. It's not two gods, but plural. But when there are only two, like eyes, like legs, like hands, then you use Aim instead of Im. And so when God says Ben Ha'arbaim, He says between the evenings, because there are two evenings. Now, how do you have two evenings in a day? Simple. When the sun begins to go down, it begins to go west. And when it goes west, it goes into evening. You see, because that evening and west means the same thing. Ma'arav or Ereb. And then when it goes all the way down, sunset, that's the second evening. And so God told them between the two evenings, when the sun begins to go down, that is from noon, that's when it goes west. And then when it finally sets, that's the second evening, but that's the major evening, so to speak. And so that was the terminology that unless you spoke the language and understood the idioms and have all this context and background, you really would not know when you come to read these things in English or any other language. And that's why so many people are confused about the, the Passover. Not knowing what it means, Ben Arbaim, and many doing an awful lot of research, but not having background, no context, no language and all that, uh, they get mixed up. Well, anyway, that's not my subject now. I just wanted to bring to you a very simple thing about Raven and show you that when you study the law of God, how deep it is, how interesting it is, how enriching it is, when you dig very deeply into it. And so, uh, from a simple word like that of a raven, that in English you will just pass over, not even think twice about it, and uh, look what you have. And when you go deeper into it, in the original language. And so that brings us to a concept that I threw away there, threw away into the air, that is uh, about uh, the language. Because when we read later on, in, uh, in Zephaniah 3.19, we read something very interesting there. Uh, actually, let's, uh, well, let's go to Zephaniah 3.19, then we'll go to another one, because there are two that are linked to each other. In 3.19, uh, God is saying in the book of uh, Zephaniah, Tzfania, again, Zephaniah doesn't mean anything. Zephan, what does Zephan mean? Uh, you see, in the translation, you lose an awful lot, and so you miss uh, quite a lot when you, when you go to, unfortunately, to another language. And so that, uh, I would explain that also, why God has to do it that way in the future. And so in verse 9 of chapter 3 of Tsefania, Tsefania means the secret of God, or the hidden of God. Tsefan means uh, to hide. And so the, the hidden one of God, Tsefania. And the English, you totally lose that, so you don't even know what it means. Uh, even the name, you know, can uh, tell you an awful lot of things. So God is revealing things through somebody who is called... Uh, the hidden of God. And he's hiding things also through them. And so in verse 9 he says, 
For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord. And the Lord is Jehovah. In other words, when they don't all have the same language, they all have different names. They're all confused and they all don't really understand. So I'm going to give them a language. And he did not use the word here pure language, but he used the word here clear language. In Hebrew, safa berura. Berura means clear language. And uh, it was translated in English into pure. In other words, when it is clear, it's pure. When it's not clear, it's not pure. That, that's, a, that's a concept. So they, in essence, they translated the concept. And even in the, in the Hebrew uh, scriptures, when you read the English translation of it, they also use the word pure because they understood uh, the meaning of it. But also don't uh, miss something in between. But they should have really put a clear language because that conveys more what God had in mind. Uh, people after the days of Babylon just got confused. And to this day they're getting confused when they read the Bible and anything else for that matter because they don't all have the same language. And so when you go to the United Nations, you all speak in English, but they don't really understand each other because they all think Chinese or, or Romanian or Russian uh, or whatever it may be from whatever country they come, yet they all speak English, but with their own comprehension of their own language. And the process, they all get confused too on several points here and there. And God wants all of humanity to worship him in truth and in spirit. And he cannot do it when you are all confused about what he says. And so, just like uh, the proverbial, uh, proverbial uh, statement of the patient that was telling the doctor who, who said just oops when he was operating on him. And he told the doctor, well, doctor, when I say oops, I know what I mean. But what do you mean when you say oops? And God says, uh, no more that confusion. I'm going to give you a clear language or a pure language. So all can communicate and all can call on the name, on the name of Jehovah. You see, you cannot all call on the name of Jehovah if you all have different names. You're all confused. And here I am not uh, preaching in the direction of uh, the Yahweh movement because to begin with, they don't even know how to pronounce the name right. Unfortunately, they too are not clear about it. And, but well, I'm talking about the fact that God wants all of humanity to think exactly the same as he does and to know exactly what he meant by that and not to get lost in the translation and get to something else. And uh, with that in mind, let's go also to Isaiah chapter 19, where he says uh, something very interesting about, uh, about the Egyptians. The time will come when they're all going to serve God, and they're not all going to be confused about different, uh, different gods and different religions as they are today. You know, they have two different religions between those in Israel and those in Egypt. And that they cannot really worship God and call upon the name of God with a pure language or a pure knowledge or pure understanding. And so that's what he says about them. The time will come when things are going to be totally different. In verse 18, uh, he says, In that day, five cities, in verse 18 of chapter uh, 19 of Isaiah, or Yishayah, Yishayah means to say uh, God the Savior, or God will save, when he says, Isaiah, you, you lose that in the translation again. Uh, that shows you, you know, how much uh, we need one language so we can all communicate properly and know exactly what God means. And so in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. The language of the people of, of Canaan, uh, speaking about the future, where the people were going to dwell in that land. Well, obviously the people of Israel. So what he's saying here, they're all going to be able to communicate in the same language. So there's no confusion anymore among human beings. 
In other words, they're all going to speak a clear language, as it said in Zephaniah 3, 9. And uh, they shall swear also by the Lord of hosts, you know, by Jehovah, of, uh, in other words, uh, the God of Israel, by his name. It's not any more different names for, uh, for, the name, for God. In the process, they uh, don't understand what God is trying to convey by his names. And one will be called the city of destruction, in other words, in Egypt. And in that day, in uh, verse 19, there's something very interesting, and many may not even realize uh, how things are going to be in the future because of uh, faulty theology, where they think that they understand the New Testament and they don't. And it says in verse 19, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And uh, then other places you also read that all around the earth people are going to have an altar of incense and an altar of a sacrifice all around the earth since all of them cannot come to Jerusalem. And they will all be offering incense to God and also sacrifices to God, sacrifices of, of, of uh, peace and whatever other sacrifices God would require of them. And if you know what kind of sacrifices God would require again in the future, you read in the books of uh, Ezekiel, uh, chapter uh, 40 to 48, and between there in specific, it talks in detail about those things, and in, as well as in other places, like in Malachi, where it talks about when he comes back and refines and purifies the children of Levi, and chapter 3, uh, three of Malachi, then the, the sacrifices of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasant in his sight. And uh, put all of those things together and you understand why do we need a pure language? Too much confusion. And so, all that came from the word ored, raven. Amazing how you go around when you begin to study the Bible and go deeper. There's never an end, as it said later on, uh, who knows the unsearchable things of God, the height and the depth and the width and the length and so forth. And so we should never get bored with the word of God. And so in verse 7, back to verse 7, back to the raven. Look what ravens are doing to us. Uh, then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. And so he went to and fro, but never came back. And uh, that was the fate of the raven. In verse 8, and he also sent out from himself a dog to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. Now, you generally can train dogs to, you know, like pigeons, you know, as messengers to come and go. The ravens do their own thing. And uh, verse 9, But the dog, found, the dog found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. Because dogs generally don't go very high. Uh, ravens do. And so he could find a top treetop and just uh, stick around more independent in nature, and that's the nature of scavengers and uh, uh, birds of prey. But the dog is different. They go only on uh, shallow, low trees, and they are of a different nature. And so she returned to Noah, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And then he waited uh, two more days. Uh, verse 11 uh, it says in, ver well, actually in verse 10 and he waited yet another seven days and again he sent the dog out of the ark in verse 11 then the dog came to him in the evening apparently for a whole day just went all around and uh, saw trees and uh, finally it says 
she came back. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. And there we have a very interesting uh, concept also. Uh, the dove that is sent out. The dove became a symbol of peace. Peaceful creature was a clean animal in contrast to the unclean that was sent out first uh, into the evening. And again, you see the spiritual analogies there. The dark, the black, into the evening, never came back. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the forces of the dark uh, analogy comes there. And Satan, priest, prince of the darkness, uh, and uh, the works of the night. And you know, all those things become spiritual terminologies. While the dog comes back, and probably was a white one, and she comes back, so that's a symbol of righteousness. Uh, dog became symbol of the Holy Spirit, and then the olive plant became the symbol of law of peace. And so you find all those things uh, symbolically, and also depicting uh, natural qualities and spiritual analogies. And so when the olive is brought back, when the dog returns symbolic of the Holy Spirit, you see that God is recreating again or renewing the face of the earth and peace, so to speak, returned to earth. And by His Spirit, God was renewing the face of the earth and so the dove was able to find that and bring it back to Noah. And so, verse 12, so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove which did not return again to him anymore. There was no need for her anymore. Now she could... Uh, get on the on the treetops and uh, was able to float around and uh, get food. And so, in other, in other words, she basically was selling in pieces on earth. The Spirit of God is out there working and renewing the face of the earth and things are back at least almost normal. And that, in essence, was uh, in the year, the flood, remember, was in the year 1656 as we went through the chronology and it took a whole year to get to that point. So it was in the year 57, at least in round numbers. And then we read uh, in verse 13, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, that was uh, Tishrei, in the first day of the month, and so you're talking about the Feast of Trumpets. Just like the first day, where on the first day in Genesis 1 and verse 2, you read about the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. So you see here again, the Spirit of God... Uh, symbolically in the dog and also uh, the spirit of uh, uh, the Holy Spirit that came on the disciples remember in Pentecost again symbolically with the dog and the dog that descended on uh, in, uh, that is the spirit of God that descended on Christ when he was baptized in a bodily shape of a dog I mean, all those things are linked together uh, spiritual analogy is there and so here we find ourselves on the Feast of Trumpets on the first day uh, just like in Genesis 1-2 when God uh, sends his spirit and hovers above the waters and then his spirit itself uh, that comes from him, that is him, uh, recreates or refashions the face of the earth. And so you see the same analogy here. It's a sort of a second Genesis, uh, one one or one two here. And so on the first day, in the first month, uh, that the waters were dried up from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And verse 14, and in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, so there's another two months that go by, the earth is really dry. 
And all the things tell you basically that God is in absolute control and in charge and everything happens when it should be. In other words, just because the raven went out, Noah doesn't go out. Just because the dog went out and never came back and things are dry, still Noah doesn't get out. And he asked the question, well, how come? You think as human beings uh, that are uh, thinking rational would say, well, let's get out. Things are safe. But you see, remember, Noah was a righteous man. Walking with God, in tune with God, waiting on God patiently all this time. And he wouldn't let his family go out. He wouldn't go out. And he wouldn't let the animals go out. He waits on God. Now look what happens in verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. In verse 17, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You see, when the time is right, you see, and that's what Noah understands, being a righteous man. I'm going to wait on God. I'm not going to do my own thing. And there is a spiritual lesson there. Wait on God. That's a very important lesson for us to learn. When we wait on God, things happen on time. And when God moves, that's when we move. And when God remembers us and begins to do things, that's when things should be done. Things are right. And so, that's exactly what happens. All this time, the whole family of Noah, learning from Noah to be faithful, wait on God. And I'm sure, you know, they were talking around, well, when, when, when are we going to leave? You know, things are fine. Maybe they had discussion. God's, and Noah says, no, you wait on God. When he tells me to go out, I go out. When he told me to come in, I go in. This is what made, your, your, uh, that is Noah, a very unique, unique man, and he's called righteous. Righteous Noah. Not just in the sense of righteousness, we obey God, we are righteous. But he was a very unique person. And uh, so that's, that's why the concept of the righteous developed. And in the Jewish community, they think about the tzaddik as a very, very unique righteous man. Not an ordinary righteous man. And the ultimate righteous one is, uh, is the one that uh, is the Messiah of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, who is called by God himself, my righteous servant. A very unique person. We're going to see that we are reaching the end of the tape now, so we're going to stop. And again, this is Mordecai Joseph saying greetings to all of God's people. Until next time. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.